Ure aihult shall ende ye bidan, worlde lives, virchese themote domes er dade, that bith dricht guman ungilivendum after celest. Hello, my name is Ryan Hamill, and I am one of the hosts of New Humanists, the podcast of the Ancient Language Institute. As always, I'm here with Jonathan Roberts, my co-host and co-founder of the Ancient Language Institute. And we are on a quest to discover what a renewed humanism looks like for the modern world. So today, we have a very special guest with us. I'm very, very excited. Um, you already heard his voice reciting a probably mysterious language to you. Um, and that is Colin Gorey, who's a linguist and I don't know, you're You've written for the Ancient Language Institute before. I would call you a friend of the Institute. I've been one of your students in a seminar on Beowulf. Um, that's part of what brought us here today. Um, so if you couldn't guess, that was that was some lines from Beowulf, the old English poem. So first off, Colin, uh, can you tell us what it is you just read? You want to give us a All translation right. or something? So this, this is a, a favorite passage of mine. I'll translate it briefly, and maybe you'll be able to see why. Roughly, each of us has to endure an end to life in this world. So let him who can gain glory before death. That is the best legacy for an unliving noble. Ah, that's great. Yeah, thanks. So, yeah, I, I've been chatting with Colin on and off. Uh, I think I first encountered your work through Twitter and sat in a seminar on Beowulf with you, invited you to write this great essay on grammar translation versus kind of living language approaches to language instruction. And Jonathan and I thought, man, we really want to talk about Beowulf and who better? So Colin, thanks for, thanks for coming on. Really excited to have you. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So Beowulf, you know, People may have seen a movie. Uh, they may have read the poem. Um, Beowulf, this is, right, the kind of the Iliad of Northern Europe. It's the epic poem that everyone read and kind of informed all of mythology of Northern Europe, just like the Iliad did in, the, in Greece, right? Well, it's, it's kind of unclear to what extent Beowulf was kind of a, a hit in its day. We don't really know how popular it was. The circumstances of its composition are, are quite mysterious. You know, there are guesses that we can make and we can probably go down, you know, several different pathways wondering about that. But in general, it seems to be the product of the marrying together of the kind of Germanic oral tradition as it was present in England and more of a literary culture brought over from continental Europe um, through the conversion to Christianity. And so the precise balance of those two things, how much is coming from the oral side, how much is coming from the literate side, is something that academics get into you know, chair-throwing matches about. <laughs> but uh, it seems to have been composed on the model of the, this sort of oral uh, tradition of poetry of of half historical, half legendary poetry. But unlike uh, Homer, we nearly lost this. 
We did. The circumstances just of uh, getting it to modern people. Uh, it was a it was a very close call. We have one manuscript of Beowulf, and it survived the Norman Conquest, which ushered in a period of some three hundred years where English was not really a literary language anymore. And so you have this manuscript probably languishing in some monastery somewhere, becoming increasingly harder and harder to read as the language diverged, the spoken language diverged from, um, from the language it was written in, Old English. Meanwhile, everyone was busy writing in Latin or French uh, during that intervening period. And then when English revives itself as a literary language, it looks very, very different. You know, we're into the Middle English period where you get people like Chaucer. And uh, so it survived that. It survived the dissolution of the monasteries. So this manuscript, which had been hanging around in a monastery, got into a private collection. That collection was in a building that burned. <laughs> so, um, but the, the great stroke of fortune uh, at the end of that story is that, is that collection was one of the founding collections of the British Library. And so it comes down to us after having traversed the same kinds of trials that, uh, that its hero went through. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, it comes down to us uh, somewhat miraculously. And so, yeah, the, in terms of the travails and sufferings of its hero, let's get into it. Um, would you mind, you know, whether people have read it or not, it'd probably be good to have a refresher of what happens in Beowulf. So Beowulf is a, an interesting poem structurally because it's got these two halves to it. One half is the half that most people are familiar with when, when they read Beowulf. Beowulf fights some monsters, fights three monsters. Um, then there's this other historical half, frequent digressions uh, into what I call the sort of Beowulf expanded universe. Um, <laughs> so all sorts of things are brought in periodically, but I'll, I'll go through the sort of the legendary story, the, the sure. monster part, and then we can talk about how it goes off from there. So in broad strokes, uh, Beowulf is the story of a, uh, a hero of a people called the Yats, spelled G-E-A-T. Um, I say the Geats in my head, but that sounds like I'm not saying it right. A lot of people say the Geats. Um, okay. <laughs> Yats? Yeah, Yats. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. And uh, he goes to Denmark. Yatland is in southern Sweden, what we call now southern Sweden. Okay. And he goes over to Denmark, where there is a great hall that's been built by a king uh, named Hrothgar. And this great mead hall is built as a sort of reward for... Um, Hrothgar's warriors. And what happens is this monster hears about it, is offended by all the, the feasting that's going on. This monster named Grendel comes and essentially despoils the hall and makes it uninhabitable. And for a, a warrior king who's used to providing, you know, mead and gifts and entertainment for his followers, it's a bad, a bad situation. So Beowulf hears about this and comes over to Denmark and says, I'll deal with this for you, king. And the king is, is thrilled. And Beowulf says, not only will I deal with this, but I will kill this monster without weapons, armor at all. I will just go in barehanded and I will, I will defeat the monster. Uh, because I've heard that this monster doesn't use any weapons, so why should I? And lo and behold, uh, there's, a, there's a struggle. The monster comes back that night. Beowulf's lying in wait. And Beowulf grapples with Grendel and tears off Grendel's arm. And Grindel slinks off into the fens, dying and bleeding to death. So there's a big celebration. Tales and songs are told. 
and sung, and uh, everyone's happy until uh, later that night, the next night. Uh, Angelina Jolie comes. Angelina Jolie comes, exactly. <laughs> Grendel's mother comes and takes vengeance and ends up uh, carrying off one of the sleeping Danes in the hall. And as under the sort of um, this, the feud culture, she has the right to do. One of her one of hers got taken, so she takes one of theirs, kind of like the Untouchables. You know, he brings <laughs> a knife, you bring a gun, that kind of thing. Right. And so Beowulf wakes up in the morning, asks Hrothgar, so how's everyone's night been? And Hrothgar's like, what are you talking about? It's been terrible. My, <laughs> my counselor just got uh, taken away by this, by this monster. And Beowulf says, oh, another monster? Well, time for me to get back to work. And so <laughs> Beowulf goes and finds uh, Grindel's mother's lair, which is in a, a pool. It's at the bottom of a pool. So he swims into this pool. Swims down for days. I'm not exactly sure how this works. Um, he swims down in this pool for days and eventually gets to a hall at the bottom of the pool where Grindel's mother dwells and does battle with her again there and eventually defeats her after uh, another battle, comes back up. Everyone's sort of despairing of his, his life at this point, but he comes back up and he's victorious again. And Hrothgar showers him with gifts and praise. And he goes back to his home country, to Yatland. He comes back to Yatland. He uh, talks to his own king, uh, Hialak, who is um, eager to hear what's happened. We learn that Beowulf was seen as something of an unpromising youth uh, who's gone away and he's made good. He's made something of himself uh, abroad. And so he tells the whole story. And we're, we're treated to a bit of a, um, a recapitulation of what's what happened in Denmark, although there are more details that have been brought out. Uh, and then we abruptly go forward in time, 50 years. Now Beowulf is king, and he's reigned peacefully and well for 50 years. We get a lot of backfilling of the story of how this happened. Um, Hialak goes off into, uh, into the land of the Franks and, and gets killed on a raid, and uh, Beowulf rises to the throne. At that time, a dragon comes into the country and starts laying waste to uh, to villages. Turns out what's happened is uh, some uh, escaped servant has made his way into the dragon's lair and taken a goblin. And dragons, uh, as we Bilbo know- Bilbo Baggins. Exactly. <laughs> a burglar has gone in and has, yeah. has, has taken an item of treasure. And dragons, as we know, are very uh, mindful of every little, every little bit of treasure. And so uh, unable to find the thief, the dragon goes into the countryside, lays waste to people's farmsteads and towns and this kind of thing. And the king is called upon to do something about it. And Beowulf at this time is an old man. Uh, but nevertheless, he, he goes out to do battle. And uh, he takes along with him uh, a shield bearer uh, named Wilof. However, the mood at this time is very different. So in the first part of the poem, we have a lot of sort of heroic... Um, boasting and this kind of thing. In the second half of the poem, when Beowulf is an old man, we're full of gloomy foreboding in all of the speeches. Mm. And, yeah. um, and Beowulf seems to foretell that he himself will die in this fight. And what happens is Beowulf does indeed die in the fight, but he deals the death blow to the dragon as well. And the only person left is Wilaf, all the other retainers having run away. And Wilaf, uh, interestingly, a name that means uh, the remains of war, or hmm. sort of the survivor of the battle. It's aptly named. Yeah. 
foretells that with Beowulf's death, the Yats will come to no good. They're surrounded by their enemies. They no longer have their great hero king to defend them. And uh, the future looks grim for them indeed. And so they set Beowulf off, give him a proper funeral. And that is the end of the poem. That's great. That was masterful. Masterful uh, kind of retelling. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. I'm, I'm scared now that <laughs> Grendel's going to come down into the, our podcast hall and he's hearing all this, all these stories being told is going to come. It's dangerous stuff telling stories. <laughs> yeah. Just do not sing about Genesis. <laughs> do not sing about the, the creation account. That's, that's, that's how you avoid Grendel. So this poem, not only is the manuscript history kind of a, a bit of a near call, kind of underwent suffering, um, but the poem wasn't always hailed as a masterwork from my understanding of what's going on. And so just to go back to Homer, like Homer was in some ways like the literary foundation of Greek religion and is just kind of cited everywhere. And if you criticize Homer, it's kind of a big thing. And so this is like what Plato does, and it's very shocking. Whereas Beowulf and the Beowulf poet, because we don't know who wrote it, doesn't get the same kind of respect. Although nowadays, things are different. But if you go back even, I don't know, 100 years, you're not going to see Beowulf listed in like collections of these. Are, this is one of the great books. Right. And from my understanding, it was viewed as kind of primitive and they're all different, different kinds of criticisms that could be leveled at it. And then there was a big turning point when Tolkien gave this lecture, the monsters and the critics, which ended up rehabilitating the poem and saying, uh, my, my favorite, one of my favorite parts of that lecture is he compares the poem to a tower. And so a man has built a tower in his field and then people come along afterwards and they don't really know anything about it. And they knock it down and they take the stones and they're looking at the individual stones for inscriptions and trying to figure out, you know, what did they eat around here? Let's see if we can find evidence of that on the stone. Um, and Tolkien says, you know, they might find out some things that might be sort of interesting, but they'll never know that if they had just climbed the tower and looked out, they would have seen the sea. And he says, this is what's been done to Beowulf. It's this great tower, which you can ascend and see something magnificent from the top of it. But what critics have done is kind of knock it down and look for historical niceties uh, or facts or linguistic, have done linguistic analysis, but they've missed kind of the whole point of the thing. Is that kind of generally the, the lay of the land? I think so. I think that's a, that's a good summation of it. I'll, I'll put it into a bit more of a, uh, a broader context in, in saying that modern interest in, or really literary interest in, uh, or scholarly interest in the poem only really dates to the late 18th century. Okay. And at that early time, we're entering into the period of sort of romanticism. Romantic I mean, when, when did, when did people even know about it? That's the thing. Because right? um, of this manuscript thing, it doesn't, like people weren't really copying it. People didn't really even know about it right. at all. So it's only after uh, it comes into, if I'm getting the dates accurate i believe it only is after it comes into the collection of the british museum's library okay later the british library 
um, that it becomes sort of of interest to scholars. Everyone's looking, going around looking for their sort of founding epic yeah. at this time in, in Europe. So late 18th century, early 19th century, um, we're starting to see this beginning of romantic nationalism. We're getting whole countries that develop self-consciousness based on their history uh, as being continuous with the same people who wrote you know, this epic um, right. in the past. So you have the seed in Spain, you have things like um, the Tong in Ireland, all sorts of, of these, uh, these epics are being found. And, and here we have Beowulf in England, looks like a good candidate. Right. But there's a bit of a catch, which is to be an English epic, it has to contend with the fact that there are no English people in it. (laughs) It doesn't take place anywhere. None of it takes place in England whatsoever. (laughs) It all takes place in Scandinavia. And the only plausible link with England is um, that Hengist of Hengist and Horsa, the sort of mythical founders of the Germanic migrations into into England, uh, Hengist is mentioned, although he doesn't come off looking great in the little aside that he's mentioned in. And so it's it's a bit of an odd epic in that way. Um, right. And the people who I think got most interested in it were the Scandinavians and the other, and, and I think also uh, in Germany as well, because it sheds light on their history as well. It's in English, un-English anyway, Certainly, yeah. but it's about the early Germanic people, um, you know, even perhaps going back to a time when English versus Scandinavian versus German, these distinctions are less um, clear cut. And right. so a lot of the scholars at that time wanted to understand their own history. And so they looked at it through that lens. Uh, they wanted to understand Iron Age Scandinavia, which is what it purports to describe. And so scholars would look at it through that lens. And I mean, it was only even first translated into a modern English in 1837. Wow. So it, it really had not had any influence on English literature <laughs> in this whole interim period. <laughs> uh, it only starts to get reintegrated in the, the early to mid 19th century. So what Tolkien does is try to push the balance away from this kind of historical view this this idea that it's uh, that the poem is predominantly of historical and antiquarian interest right over to the idea that there is some sort of intrinsic literary value in the poem as well and you know i talked earlier about these two halves of the poem there's the historical half and the and the sort of legendary half and nowadays we tend to put a lot of emphasis on the legendary half you know Beowulf's about fighting monsters. It's about th- fighting three monsters. One, two, yeah. three. It's awesome. But there are like <laughs> 2,000 lines of other stuff right. in there as well. And that other stuff was much more interesting to the early scholars. And so after Tolkien, that other stuff recedes in importance and becomes kind of like, what, why are we interrupting the action for 700 lines to talk about some character that we'll never hear about again? People start to ask those kinds of questions. Interesting. Yeah. So... Tolkien has his own view on the literary merits of the poem. What are you, what is your view on the literary merits of it? Do those track more or less with Tolkien? Do you differ from him? Um, you know, what's so great about Beowulf? I think for me, 
So yeah, Tolkien's coming at it, you know, knowing what Tolkien later did with his life is quite informative. When we look yeah. at, you know, he wants to rehabilitate this legendary aspect of, of Beowulf. And we know that part of his, um, the impetus behind Middle Earth, especially in the early days, was a sort of mythology of England. Yeah. You see all sorts of ways that that um, he tries to work in, uh, I believe the character Ariel is supposed to be the father of Hengist and Horsa. Um, and Ariel goes to Middle Earth and learns the legends and brings it back. And that's how Tolkien is supposed to have heard of them. And in, in an earlier version of, of his Tom Ship, he has some great stuff on this, if you're interested in, in the sort of the connections there. So that's the that's where kind of this rehabilitation of the legendary comes from. From in my perspective, I see Beowulf as um, just a remarkable use of language. This is perhaps my bias as a linguist. I tend to engage with the language probably first, um, yeah. and I I see just a great amount of of skill, of craft, of care, and of of beauty in this poem. Um, not only in the in the, in the um, in the artistry of the of the verse form, but also in a lot of the structural aspects of the poem. So some critics have complained that it seems to be haphazard in some ways. It doesn't, you know, go first this and this and the other. We have all these digressions. But right. to me, this is it's the the fact that we have this compelling story with a huge helping of these digressions. It really reminds me of. Little more than the the kind of expanded universe, the the the, the, it's the Beowulf cinematic universe <laughs> that we have right. um, in in a lot of modern entertainment properties. We have this illusion of depth that yeah. if you only watch one of these movies or if you only read Beowulf, your uh, the door is open up to you for this huge history and this huge um, body of legends that you only see little glimpses of. You get you know oh and of course he was his brother. Who what? <laughs> there must right. have been some other poem about him. We just don't know. Right. We, you know, it didn't survive for us. Um, the fact that the poet only mentions these a lot of these characters obliquely in a way that do- doesn't entirely make sense. It's very hard for us to like the Finn episode in in Beowulf is very hard to make sense of. Uh, Tolkien actually wrote a book trying to make sense of it. It's very hard to read. It's abrupt. It sort of jarringly appears in the middle of another. Um, another digression and it sort of indicates that the the audience probably knew about this you didn't know you didn't need to say oh by the way there was a guy named finn who did this it you know i'm just making a reference to the finn story here and you all know the finn story you know anyone yeah that kind of thing right anybody here from cleveland that you know that's it's, it's <laughs> like a show right um right. and i really like to this this vista that we get onto this this early period in yeah. the history of the speakers, at least, of English. Mm-hmm. One of the fascinating aspects that you have to contend with when you read it is you get this picture of this very this ancient kind, kind of pagan civilization, and yet it really feels like the Christian God is poking in in various places. Um, so it's this kind of paganism versus Christianity uh, issue in the poem. And you alluded to it earlier when you're talking about this kind of oral Germanic tradition versus the literate Christian tradition that moves into the British Isles. And it's something in Monsters and Critics, Tolkien talks about. He has a great 
great passage I'd like to read, and then we can we can talk about it. And this is kind of his take, and so I want to hear your take. And Jonathan, I know you have some thoughts about about this issue and dynamic as well. Um, but Tolkien says, almost we might say that this poem was in one direction inspired by the debate that had long been held and continued after, and that it was one of the chief contributions to the controversy. Shall we or shall we not consign the heathen ancestors to perdition? What good will it do to posterity to read the battles of Hector? Quid hinieldus cum Christo. The author of Beowulf showed forth the permanent value of that pietas, which treasures the memory of man's struggles in the dark past. Man fallen and not yet saved, disgraced but not dethroned. It would seem to have been part of the English temper and its strong sense of tradition, dependent doubtless on dynasties, noble houses, and their code of honor, and strengthened, it may be, by the more inquisitive and less severe Celtic learning, that it should, at least in some quarters, and despite grave and Gallic voices, Tolkien can never resist a pot shot at the French, uh, <laughs> preserve much from the Northern past to blend with Southern learning and new faith. So I think that's kind of a remarkable statement of, uh, at least his, his point of view of the intellectual puzzle that, um, English Christians were dealing with, uh, kind of literary minded English Christians. Okay. We have this big oral tradition. What do we do with it? Yeah. What do you guys think? Um, it's, it's interesting. So you mentioned Tom Shippey earlier and he has a really fun, um, set of three lectures on Tolkien and Beowulf. And he sets up this problem that, you know, Brian just read. And he calls it the granny problem. The granny problem. Yes. <laughs> it's not, it's, it's, you have, you have the, uh, the, the quote that, that you read, Ryan kind of puts it in, in the, the literary aspect of it. It's like, what do we do with this literary history? But then there's also, um, with the, the timing of the, the, the writer, the, the, the poet of, of Beowulf within living memory, right? The grannies are, are pagan. And, and so you have this, this problem because on the one hand, these are people who are very traditionally minded, have this sort of pietas, right? They, they want to respect the elders. On the other hand, um, they believe Christianity is true. And so, um, what do you do with that? <laughs> I don't know, Colin, I don't know if you can, you can fill in some of the, the history there and some of the impulses behind the, you know, how that this drives the, the, the poem, the poet. Yeah. The, the granny problem, I think is such a, a great phrase for it. Um, and I think it's also worth noting, um, uh, and maybe, uh, should be does in, in those lectures as well. I have, I have, uh, watched them, but I can't remember if it's in this or somewhere else. Um, but this is true of Tolkien as well. Mm -hmm. This is someone yeah. who not only is um, is a Christian himself, but also has tremendous respect for these, you know, the 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 pre-Christian Northern mythos. And the question is, how do you reconcile those things? They shouldn't it shouldn't work together. But Beowulf in Beowulf it does somehow. Um, there is Beowulf is you can see it as a kind of attempt to solve that or mm -hmm. a, a way, a way through a, a potential answer. One thing which is interesting 
it kind of gets on at the question of dating uh, Beowulf. When was this composed? Um, and it's an extremely controversial question because it's so it, it gets into this whole Christian pagan thing. It gets into all sorts of other stuff. Um, the the more linguist philologist side uh, argues for an earlier date. The more literary critic side tends to argue for a later date. Um, and there are some like very technical reasons why I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a linguist, so I'm, I side with the, the earlier date um, due to some features of just how the, the meter works um, that, that don't accord with the dialect that's written, that our manuscript is written in. But if indeed it is in an earlier date, then the, the granny question is, is a very live one. Are they, are the ancestors damned? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we see people like, Hrothgar and Beowulf, uh, they seem to almost act like the sort of Old Testament kings in a way. Um, I think that this is one model. It's really interesting when we look at Beowulf itself, there's, I think, nothing from the New Testament referenced in it whatsoever, um, but plenty from the Old Testament. And maybe there's some part of the answer to that question there. It's like just it's in re- terms of what what in the Old Testament is referenced. Off the top of my head, I can think of um, what provokes Grendel is this recitation of the creation story. Grendel is said to have descended from Cain. Um, there, what else? What else do we get that's kind of biblical? Whether it's the narrator or characters, yeah. or yeah, there's the there's the flood, and flood. then there's this. Um, this tradition of interpretation of how we get the giants uh, that's also alluded to. And, and also the flood is part of the reason why the flood is sent is to destroy the giant. So there's, there's those explicit references to, to Genesis along with some understanding of some of the interpretive tradition on, on Genesis. Uh, but yeah, only Genesis is explicitly alluded to. Mm-hmm. In the Northern Critical Edition, there is a, a fun essay by um, Thomas D. Hill called The Christian Language and Theme of Beowulf. And he likes to call the the Yeats and basically the good guys in Beowulf as uh, Noah, Noahide or Noahide. Um, so he kind of sit, wants to situate them in a kind of Noah um, period, like they're 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 pretty far back <laughs> in the Old Testament, um, and and how he he thinks of these characters theologically. Well, that's interesting. Even I mean, it it narrows it even more. It's not just Old Testament. It's not just Genesis. It's like the kind of mythological prologue to Genesis, because Genesis as mm-hmm. like historical account of the people of Israel really gets started with Abraham. God calls Abraham out of Ur and makes the covenant with him and all this stuff. Everything before that is kind of like time before time, just the way it reads, not making any comment about uh, about doctrine. Um, and so it seems like the Beowulf poet is confining himself to, like if he knows, I mean, if he's Christian, he knows the whole story and he's going to know all of Genesis, but he's, he's like making a purposeful choice perhaps to be like, I'm just going to pick on these kind of mythological themes and stories in my mythological poem. It does seem like that. There are a few other argued parallels, but they're parallels. They're not um, 
they're not explicit, explicit references. Yeah. So the one mm-hmm. is um, Beowulf and David. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the the Frostar uh, is the equivalent of Saul. De- Beowulf is the equivalent of David. Uh, Grendel is the equivalent of Goliath. And it's, it's actually quite blow by blow um, if you look at the the parallel there. I don't want these weapons. They don't, they exactly. don't fit me. I'm just... Yeah, I'm just a humble shepherd Mm -hmm. boy. I can (laughs) get my five smooth stones from the brook. All the way up to decapitating Grendel with um, his own sword. Yeah. Right, and the sword and the sword is uh, the hilt and the hilt of the sword is where the story of the giants is told. So that's that's interesting. There's all sorts of like very depth to it. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things that I find so you know, I've I I've not read much, but it it seems like there's two kind of approaches to Beowulf. One is it's you know this is primarily it's primarily a pagan poem that has some some sort of Christian or Old Testament stuff sprinkled on it, and then there's the kind of the other take on it. This is primarily a Christian or Old Testament style poem that's engaging with pagan stuff. And one thing that's kind of interesting to me is thinking about Beowulf in contrast with uh, Dante's Inferno or, or the, the you know, Dante's Commedia as a whole, because part of, what, part of what leads to this problem or this tension is like, well, we have these monsters, we have this weird stuff that's nowhere in the Bible, but um, that problem does not arise at all with Dante for several reasons, but Arguably, the stuff that some of the stuff that appears in Dante is even more alien to to the worlds of the Old and New Testaments. Um, so maybe, maybe I imagine there's still a good reason for for that tension. Colin, if you have any any further thoughts on that? Well, on the on the question of of you know essentially what kind of poem this is, yeah, um, it's true that that those are the kind of the, the battle lines that have been drawn, and it goes. It also has to do with the dating question, so you can see why that would get drawn into the controversy. So you have these sort of dichotomies set up. Christian, pagan, literate, oral, late, early. What else? Uh, Continental Europe, like Latinate Europe and the Germanic North. Um, the I, I tend to think that the Christian elements are inextricable. It, they, they don't seem to be window dressing to me. I don't feel as if... Um, as if we have a fundamentally pagan poem with a bit of Christian window dressing to, you know, make it kind of polit- politically correct of its day, <laughs> or um, or a fundamentally um, a fundamentally Christian poem with, you know, a bit of pagan sort of, you know, it's like a historical costume in a period piece. I, I think right. that we're during the entire Old English period, um, we have the interplay of oral and literate culture. We have the interplay of of pagan and Christian worldviews or practices or whatever you want to uh, call them. Um, we have people complaining in the 11th century about, you know, we have churchmen complaining about the sort of pagan practices of the people that have, you know, hung on. And so that's that's right at the end. That's where you know that's when our ma- uh, our manuscript comes from, um, as well as so the very latest that it could possibly have been composed, unless someone composed it after the manuscript and then. Uh, you know, we'd need some sort of a time machine or something. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, that, that problem probably is even, or that tension is probably even greater earlier. So it's hard to get rid of that. 
those two ingredients are present throughout the entire mm. period. And it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting debate. I don't know if it'll ever be solved. I, I myself, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a fence sitter on this one. I'm just right in the middle. <laughs> We've got, you yeah, know, yeah. it's like a perfect marriage of both. Yeah. That, that explanation kind of helps me make sense of a, of a, of a line in uh, Tolkien's uh, lecture on the monsters and the critics or the critics and the monsters. Who's a bigger monster, Grendel or the critics? <laughs> <laughs> well, he goes through different takes on, on Beowulf. And there, there was one that just made me laugh out loud, which was something like, this is a Nordic Summa. <laughs> and just, it just made me laugh. But, but now I'm, I'm, I'm kind of seeing potentially one of the motivations behind that view, right? The Summa is kind of seen as this harmony between pagan learnings, especially Aristotle, and Christianity, right? And so here is we're seeing some sort of harmony between, uh, potentially a harmony, right, between um, the not so far away pagan past and the you know, Christian present. Um, so it's not as funny now, but man, I, I that's <laughs> I laughed out loud when I read that. It's a Nordic summa. But um, reading that, you just are struck with the, an appreciation for Tolkien's ability with with language and his wit throughout the entire thing. Um, I, I oh, have, yeah. you know, reading that, I have laughed out loud yeah. a few times, more than a few. <laughs> so since we've mentioned the lecture, how about we talk about the monsters? I'm really intrigued by the monsters. Um, and in the, in the, in the shippy lecture. Uh, so one of, one of the things that we know about the monsters is that they're descended from Cain, right? Who's the, the famous fratricide kills his brother uh, but Shippy points out that there's a translation issue here and that it could be um, translated as uh, the descendants of Ham. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think I think um, what Shippy is referring to there is these rival traditions for kind of explaining the existence of sort of non-human um, inhabitants of the, the Germanic world, elves and, and, and the like. And one of the traditions uh, was that they're the, the descendants of Cain, and one is that they're the, the descendants of Ham. And I think there's a scribal error, or there's, there's some question um, that the copyist was familiar with a different story than, the, um, than perhaps the composer was. And so we get Ham showing up instead of Cain um, at some point. I think that's, uh, th- that's what's going on there. What's what's interesting is the given the 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 setting of the explanation of uh, the uh, of Grendel as a descendant of Cain. It's not it's not like it doesn't look textually like an interpolation. It would be hard to to get it out of there uh, and still have a, a, a text that looks you know. Often you can tell like a stylistic shift or um, a difference in meter or a new dialect being used in some area. Um, can can signal those things or markedly different vocabulary. Some of the Christian stuff does show up like it feels a little bit like a heavy editorial hand. Someone came afterward. You kind of, I, I think we talked about this in the seminar that I did with you. There's a few lines where I can't even remember what it is, but it just really feels like you could cut this out and not much is lost in terms of how the poem goes forward. I mean, it gives you some interesting color, but mm-hmm. it doesn't really feel like part of the poem necessarily. Yeah, there are there are cases like that, but I, I think that the specific, the ancestry of, of Grendel is not. 
Um, although I would probably want to <laughs> revisit the text before I said that too confidently. Another interesting thing while we're on the topic of this, this harmony, I can return to monsters in just a second, but uh, about the, the literate culture. There are no books in Beowulf. There is, uh, there are a few uses of Ritan to write. Um, well, it's the ancestor of our word to write, mm-hmm. um, but it's not used in the sense of writing uh, on like a codex or a scroll or anything. Um, in in Beowulf, it seems to be scratching, and of course, a lot of the a lot of our words for writing come from words for scratching. Huh. And you can you know imagine someone with a knife scratching runes into a a stone or a piece of wood. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's that's another mystery. You know, it clearly does seem to be a literary. You know, a text written by someone who is, or composed by someone who is familiar with, um, with literate culture. There are questions of whether there is influence of Virgil in some parts. The quotation I read at the start has a, a parallel in the Aeneid. It's, uh, each of us has to endure an end to life in the world. Let him who can gain, gain glory before death. And, um, in, the uh, book 10 of the Aeneid, there's a, a similar uh, passage. Statsua qui quidies brevet in preparabile tempus omnibus test vitaes et famam extendere factis hoc virtutis opus. To each his day is given. Uh, beyond uh, recall, man's little time runs by, but to prolong life's glory by great deeds is the power of virtue. So it's, you know, the same sentiment. Yeah. But is that influence? Is that just what it's like being a, you know, an Iron Age hero. I don't know. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Uh, but there's a, there is a, a text called the um, Liber Monstrorum, which does have a lot of, it seems to have been something like a source text, or maybe mm. it's, it's comes from a common source to Beowulf. It talks about, um, it even has Hyalak as a monster in there. So the king of um, mm. the Yats, Beowulf's liege, um, is mentioned in there. And then there are also, if I recall correctly, there's a, a tripartite division of monsters, the ones who are, um, I may I, I may flub this, but it's something like the ones who are that, that walk, the ones under the water, and the ones that fly. So Grendel, Grendel's mother, and the dragon, um, right. things like that. Uh, come up. And so that's uh, a relatively, I think it's a more recent entry, entry into the, the fray of the scholarship on this because it's not in mm. Old English. It is an Anglo-Latin text. Huh. So it seems that the Beowulf poet may have been familiar with this, which indicates a, a rather extensive involvement with literary culture um, and yet no books and no writing. So <laughs> there also, there seems to be this historical sense as well. The poet knew that that wasn't what they did back then. So, right. They were, you know, so as to not introduce anachronism, just leave it out. Which would underscore the pietas of the people who, or person who composed the poem is, you know, they're dealing with this granny problem and they're not just dealing with their kind of religious sensibility, but trying to be pious towards the past more generally. And not, yeah, introduce kind of continental culture into a uh, thoroughgoingly kind of Anglo-Saxon setting. And you do see that kind of thing all the time. 
you see right. these anachronisms come in um, all the time in 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 text, and so it's kind of notable that it doesn't occur uh, in Beowulf. And there also seems to be a great uh, historical sense in the fact that we actually have you can make family trees for the royal houses of Denmark, for the royal house of Jutland, and for the royal house of Sweden. You actually have five generations of the Danish royal house. Then you know you can make the you can make your appendices with all the family trees and everything and, and your yep. maps if you want to treat it like a, a fantasy novel. Um, right. And we're, we're given, you know, the parentage of different, um, of different heroes where, you know, a lot of, you know, there are, I, I forget the number of characters in Beowulf. I may have it, um, may have it somewhere around here. Uh, 70, 70 named characters in Beowulf. Half of these appear once. <laughs> And only a dozen are mentioned more than five times. And then like half of those are only because it's a patronymic. Right. Son of Eno, Beowulf's father, which as an aside means servant of the blade, which is kind of cool. And, and you can hear it, uh, Edge Theo, Edge being, uh, what is it, metonymy for, um, for a sword, for a blade. It's the Edge is meaning the sword, so his servant. Servant of the blade, and that is indeed, the edge, and that is indeed the the ancestor of our our modern word edge. There, all sorts yeah. of linguistic delights in in Beowulf. Um, another one, uh, Brim. Brim is the ocean, uh, but it's specifically the edge of the ocean. Hmm. But it's used for ocean in Beowulf, um, and that's where we get the brim of a hat. Yeah, yeah. Also, or water like spilling over the brim of your cup. Exactly. Oh, that's great. So with the um, with the with the monsters, you know, uh, one of the things that Shippy says in his lecture is that uh, you can't say anything about Beowulf that will not be contested. <laughs> this is so <laughs> right? true. Everything, <laughs> everything you can possibly say that is will be contested. Beowulf is a poem. <laughs> ah, yeah. Don't be so sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's actually a novel. It's a Victorian um, novel. Okay. <laughs> and so. Um, there's something that, that strikes me as kind of mythic about it, right? And of course, that would be that could be, if I if I said this with in front of uh, you know Beowulf scholars, oh, I don't know, probably not mythic, right? There would be an argument there. But uh, presuming that, and you know, in in uh, in mythology, you know, characters, one of the, one of the modern complaints is, oh, these are not fleshed out characters. They do not have this juicy psychological you know, drama that we are accustomed to in, in modern stories. But there's actually a lot going on um, in in mythology that's more kind of symbolic. There's attempts to resolve certain problems or answer certain questions or explain different aspects of reality. So with with the Beowulf poem, it seems that one of one of the motivations is what we've discussed is the is the grounding problem. Um but then there's it seems like there's all there's potentially all sorts of layers to this work. And one of the things that I don't really have many thoughts on, but just more questions about are the monsters. Like what if we go the the mythic route, do the monsters stand for anything? Are they meant to symbolize things? Or what 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 are the monsters doing? What are they? Um Or is the dragon just historical? I mean, it's it's just you know, it's just the dragon that everyone knew about. They didn't the need past. to introduce yeah. it. <laughs> I had a friend in, I think, freshman year of high school. We, in my like world history class, we were supposed to do 
like family heritage reports, just like a little presentation in front of class. And uncharacteristically, he totally forgot about the assignment. And so he goes up and talks about how his family came to America from England on the Mayflower or something. He's just making stuff up. (laughs) And the teacher asks, well, why did your family leave? And just totally straight face. He's like, because of the dragon attacks. (laughs) And everyone's just like, open mouth because this is a I mean he's he's a good student very serious very <laughs> serious fellow and the teacher I like, couldn't believe like are you, are you serious kind of like laughing nervous he's like oh yeah he was you know <laughs> describing the dragon attacks on his family's village and he gets he teacher's like okay well, you why don't you go sit down and one of, <laughs> one, of one of our classmates leans over to my friends like I believe you <laughs> <laughs> I believe <laughs> well, the, with with the dragon, um, you could talk about greed. I think that's that's the kind of English class um, answer to 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 that question. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. The dragon has this hoard of treasure, which it has taken from this sole survivor, this really enigmatic and really kind of cool figure who gives a great speech. Um, the dragon didn't earn this treasure, didn't collect it. The the sole survivor figure dies he gives a speech to no one and then passes away out of the earth the dragon finds the hoard and just sort of sits on it um has no use for it but nevertheless uh, notices when um a, a very lowly person in the world has has made off with with uh, the smallest part of it and so i think that there's a there's a there's the strong tradition of using monsters to illustrate lessons for us especially in the middle ages you have the, the 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 tradition of bestiaries, um, where animals and, and and beasts of different kinds give us lessons about how to live well. And so I think you know we can look at the the dragon in that way. I think in terms of um, Grendel's mother, Grendel's mother is an interesting character because the poet seems to regard her much more sympathetically than one might expect. Um, and this has given rise to translations and interpretations that sort of center Grendel's mother uh, as as a character. It's important to you know Grendel's mother is a a, a warrior woman of some kind. Um, she's within her rights to attack the hall, you know, within the the, the tradition of of feuding that these societies operated under. Um, it reminds me a little bit of Orestes, and you know. It, the parallel is not great, but there's something there in terms of like Clytemnestra isn't guilt, doesn't have blood guilt on her because she has not killed someone who's blood related to her. She's killed her husband, Agamemnon. Agamemnon did have blood guilt because he sacrificed his daughter, uh, who he's blood related to. And then Orestes, so Clytemnestra has, has committed a crime, but it's not the most heinous of crimes. Whereas Orestes, who kills his mother, He's really done something bad. And so he's hounded by the Furies for this. Um, so there's this kind of aspect of motherhood and feuding and blood guilt. I don't know. There's there are certain parallels there. They're not great, but this is what it makes me think of. Mm-hmm. And it, it, there's also this element of how does the society move out of this phase, um, mm. which I think it, it's not explicitly um discussed in Beowulf, but I think it it lingers in the background of it because we're we're the poet is composing this in a time in which these 
tribal feuds do not exist anymore, to at least not to the same degree. Mm. Uh, the nobles of the time are more like we think of nobles and not a warrior elite to the same degree anyway, by the, by the time of composition, most likely. Of course, they're more, more so than our, our current day nobility are, but um, yeah. they're, they're moving along that transition away from you know, the person with a big axe who swings it around to someone who you know, has opinions on interior design. Um, there's just this, this <laughs> slow transition that lasts, you know, 2000 years and gets us from one yeah. to the next. Um, and so there, he, uh, the, the poet is speaking from a position farther along that and looking back into the past at this sort of more violent time in many ways. And we see these nations that are constantly worried about what their fate is going to be when they don't have their strong man to protect them. This is what happens with, uh, at the very end when, Beowulf's death is is upon him, and the people mm-hmm. cry out and say, "What will become of the the Yats?" You know, of all the people mentioned in the all the peoples mentioned in the poem, we have the Danes, we have the Swedes, we have the Yats, we have a few others: Franks, Frisians, um, Hildebrandan. Well, we don't know too much about them, but the Danes, the uh, Franks, and the Swedes—they get countries. You know, Denmark, Sweden, France. <laughs> Where are the Yats? Uh. So this is the this is taking place at the birth of these these mm-hmm. kingdoms, which will become the countries of Europe in later times. And so there is a sense of perhaps explaining why this is the case that there is no Yatland. Um, you can't mm. go, you can't visit Yatland as a country. Yeah. So it's interesting. Earlier you were mentioning the the quest for the founding myth, and potent, arguably this could be the an anti founding myth. Yeah. And it's there's also this kind of you know, sort of knowing look that the poet gives to the audience because the audience knows there's no Yatland. Right. And, you know, this is perhaps why. Yeah. So with the monsters, so we have the dragon, uh, monstrification, I don't know if that's a word, a monstrification of of uh, avarice. We have Grendel's mother, potentially a monstrification of the blood feuds. And what about, what about Grendel? What, what do we say about Grendel? Grendel is is an interesting character because in a poem obsessed with fathers, who's the son of whom, Grendel's explicitly mentioned as having no father. Or not no father, but we don't know who his father was. Yeah. And there's this kind of outsider quality. You know, obviously we know who his mother uh, is. We know that he springs from the line of Cain, but we have no idea who his father is. He doesn't fit in this sort of heroic society. Um, walking out on the marsh, you know, a marsh stepper, someone who's uh, on whom God's wrath is. Go this irre. Interestingly, irre, wrath, and ira, not cognate. Who would have thought, right? <laughs> There's another one, famne, which is um, woman in Old English, not cognate with femina. Wow. Um, so as far as far as how you know sim, what does Grendel symbolize as a monster? I'm not sure. I'm I'm hesitant to to put any simple or any any kind of clean bow on it. Um, there's a the only thing I can think of to say is that there's another character whose um, whose parentage is obscure in this in the poem, which is shield shaving at the very start. Um, a very different kind of outsider, like a, a very heroic outsider. The um, so shield shaving is kind of this folk hero type, you know, someone who 
travels who 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 washes ashore like in a basket this foundling who becomes the great king and rescuer of the people and there's another parallel if we want to talk about um right. uh, biblical parallels there with Moses and so i've always been struck by the this fact about these two characters i don't know if it gives mm. us any uh any great answer to the question of what to make of grendel um but the the there's a parallel there i think uh with respect to grendel and shield shaving there's also a parallel of shield shaving with respect to Beowulf. Here we have two people who come over mm. the sea to Denmark to rescue the Danes from their dire distress. Although there's a twist because once both of them leave to unknown shores, they both, you know, uh, shield shaving at the start, his funeral and, and Beowulf mm-hmm. at the end. Um, but shield shaving leaves a successful prosperous kingdom behind. And Beowulf leaves disaster behind for the Yats. So I don't think I can answer the, the Grendel question satisfyingly, but I can point out the, the poet's concern with, with parallelism and structure mm-hmm. and, and, yeah. the, you know, there are echoes left and right. Uh, there, this is, this seems to be something that, that the poet loves to do. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. I hadn't considered those, those parallels. And with um, Shiv Shielding, you know, at the beginning, the, you know, he's, he comes, you know, right. He's, he's sent in this, what, what is the, what is the actual word? A basket, a boat? It's not specifically referred to as the, the vessel isn't referred to. It's, um, let me see if I can get the exact quotation. It's something that translates roughly to he came over waves being but a child. Uh, and also Fashhaftfunden, he was found destitute. Yeah. So we have this the, almost like a, a, a Moses analog in shield shaving. Um, there are other aspects of shield shaving that make him seem like a mythological character. One is the name shield, shield, <laughs> right? Shield <laughs> is, is shield. Uh, shaving is uh, of the sheaf. Um, so there's a kind of fertility god um, aspect. Um, his son, Beo. Uh, is barley. And there's a really cool um, source from later on, more in the Middle English period, uh, that talks about uh, a custom of an abbey, uh, which was established back in the the old English period anyway, I don't remember exactly when it was, going back hundreds of years, where they took a a shield and put a a candle and a a sheaf of wheat and then um, rolled it down the river. Oh wow! Yeah, so it, it seems that um, that this is referring to some kind of fertility god tradition, obliquely. Although it becomes used in different ways, um, we get skilled in in Scandinavian uh, sources as well, referring to the same the same character. So one of my questions is, and I'm, I I used to have a stronger opinion on this until I started reading more Tolkien. Is um, is there any way of establishing whether the author of Beowulf knows about the New Testament. And so initially I had all of these thoughts. I was like, oh yeah, definitely, definitely, because Beowulf is a very strong parallel figure to Christ. And I'll I'll just you know bring up some of the things and you can you can disabuse me of some of them. You can say, no, that's that one's too fanciful. <laughs> that one's too or or you know, you can you can correct any of them. So I'll just kind of run through some of them and then we can we can talk about them in in greater detail. Um, one of the ones that 
struck me initially was um, there's this discussion uh, or this conversation between Hrothgar's wife, right? And she says of Beowulf that, you know, whoever was his mother was, you know, there was grace upon her or something, something along those lines, right? Uh, Tolkien argues that, no, this is not, this is, the language might seem similar, but it's not what you see in Luke where it's like, you know, Hail Mary full of grace. Uh, so there's one there. And when we when we have Beowulf about to fight with Grendel, there's this whole speech about, I'm not going to use weapons. And then later on, there's this whole thing about how um, Beowulf could have just destroyed Grendel if he had weapons, right? And to my mind, it's like, isn't that a little bit like the incarnation? It's like Beowulf kind of making himself vulnerable, even though he doesn't really need to. Um, Interesting. And then, and then, and, and then, in that same kind of episode, what are people doing? Even though they know the monster is coming, right? And the great hall, they're all asleep. <laughs> What's going on with? Them? Why are they asleep? The, the monster is there, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, a child knows to not fall asleep if he suspects that there's a monster. <laughs> They, these people know that there's a monster and they fall asleep. What does that remind? Well, it reminds me of, of the, the scene with, you know, Christ taking his disciples to be with him, uh, and to pray and they all fall asleep. <laughs> but then, then there's this kind of, um, ship. He says he doesn't know what to do with it. The, the one guy that gets killed by Grendel, he's like, what, what, why does that happen? It's strange. Beowulf is awake. <laughs> and he says, Tolkien, Tolkien says that it was just too fast. But there's no indication that Beowulf moves at all, right? It seems like he's just there pretending to be asleep, watching his buddy get, get chewed on. And uh, this makes me think of like, well, this is kind of like Judas being consigned to Satan. I don't know if you're going to mention this, but there's another potential parallel at the end. How many people just... Uh, Beowulf mm-hmm. go to fight the dragon with 12 yeah. um, and yeah. one of them is the thief so there's a potential mm-hmm. parallel there and also there's the um, a moment where Beowulf gives a speech um, in which she's full of sorrow and uh, perhaps a little bit of doubt before the fight with the dragon and so some people have um, compared mm-hmm. this to the agony in the garden and yeah, this is um, this is definitely something that's out there in the in the in the debate. I guess everything yeah. is debated with Beowulf. <laughs> so I, I think it's I, I've just decided to skip the scholarly. You know, well, some people are just yeah, just talk <laughs> uh, because there's always going to be someone who can who can argue against it because the text is so so big and so deep and the scholarship is so broad. Right. So I think that there's definitely a case to be made. For those things, the question of did the poet know about the New Testament? I think the answer has to be yes, um, because purely uh, as a question of dates, uh, there's mm-hmm. a, a way that we can date the action of Beowulf. The historical segments um, it actually hinges around uh, Helac, the king of the Danes, who dies in this raid, uh, this ill-conceived raid on the Franks um, in the. Historia Francorum of Gregory of Tours um, is written that 
someone named Clochilicus attacked the Franks in 520. Mm. Um, and if you work out all the sound changes uh, down to Old English and then to um, Frankish, on I think it would be Frankish, I guess, on the other hand, um, that's that's our that's our Heolac right there. And so that allows us to pinpoint the the, the time period. And there are a bunch of other uh, named characters who correspond to historical um, figures as well. Heolac is the, the clearest one. So so then you then we have a range. So Beowulf has to be between five hundred and a thousand. Yeah. Beowulf has to be um so five twenty is so Beowulf's life, presumably, um the character around right. late fifth century, like four ninety-five to five seventy something, uh right. probably. And so the earliest that uh, Beowulf could have been written based on the language is 685. Okay. This is where we get Cadmon's hymn, um, the oldest surviving English poem, very archaic um, by comparison with with Beowulf. Um, before yes. that, we're getting, you know, runic inscriptions on combs and things like that. Got it. Uh, so 520 to 685, that's at least 150 years of, of, of beautiful tradition. Um, and then we have at the end, the manuscript, you know, maybe 1125 or sorry, um, 1025. And so between there, that's our range. And that's yeah. where we have. So that's what we have to, to deal with, you know, in that range, an English person's going to know about right. the New Testament. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe, maybe to put my question more precisely would be the, does the author make any, you know, it's, it's clear that he's making parallels to to the New Testament, and you know, I guess then the question there is clear to whom, yeah. <laughs> given the given the debates with the mother with uh, Grendel's mother. There's also a similar, um, there's uh, some additional potential parallels, right? The descent into hell. It's like how did he get down to, uh, so? No, so far below, and how far is that? <laughs> and where exactly is was it? it? Three days that he's down. Yeah. How long is it? He's swimming for three days, and then he gets to a hall, and it doesn't seem to be an underwater hall specifically. It's not, you know, oh, you know, he had to peel the kelp aside, and and mm-hmm. you know, he had a hard time standing. It just seems to be a hall that happens to be underwater. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, Beowulf, uh, although we do have a, a setup for Beowulf being a skilled swimmer in the right. uh, Breka episode. Um, right. So you know, story. maybe that's there's something like that. There's also a kind of a folk tale quality to a lot of Beowulf, um, or a folk or a fairy tale quality. Think of the things that come in threes. So when Beowulf gets to Denmark, he's challenged three times: first by the Coast Guard, second by the um, the guardian of Hrothgar's Hall, and third by Unferth. And so there, there are it's a huge amount of text spent on those three challenges it's like 700 lines hmm. it's like a sixth of the poem <laughs> um it, by contrast the fight with grendel is pretty short right uh so there there are these kinds of um there are these kinds of almost folktale like qualities to it other things are the way people are named you know i mentioned earlier we the, the the one who remains after the battle is just named after named after him, you know, what he is um, yeah there and there are there are other other things like that, right? That that go on that that lead you to believe that there's all all manner of, of of influences being stirred together in this in this poem. 
Right. Well, I think it's about time to uh, round toward the finish line. Jonathan, any, anything else you wanted to bring up first? Yeah, well, I uh, there was a, a line from uh, Tolkien's commentary that I thought would be interesting for me to read. And it's a... It's one of the Tolkien is, is going through the you know the granny problem that we've referred to, and he he proposes this is something that he proposes as to this is what Beowulf is doing. So there's the question. He starts with a question: What are we to think of the nobility and heroism of the heathen past? Was it all just evil, damned? To his ideas on this second more difficult question, in his day a much more living and controversial issue, we shall soon be coming in lines 135 through 150. I think that he attempted to equate the noble figures of his own northern antiquity with the noble figures, sages, judges, and kings of Israel before Christ. They too were damned, owing to the fall, even if they were members of the chosen people. The redemption of Christ might work backwards, but in the horroring of hell, why should not, say, Hrothgar be among the rescued too? For the people of Israel could also fall away in time of trial to the worship of idols and false gods. For that reason, I think that when Anglo-Saxons made Skeef, the son of Noah, born in the Ark, it was not mere genealogical fantasy, a mere trick to make their king's lines go back to Adam. For that is not particularly glorious. If you make your genealogical tree too long, it merges into that dim, long-rooted tree upon which all men grow. Any serf in Ethelwolf's house could claim descent from Adam. It was rather a process due to a line of thought closely related to the idea of the Beowulf poet. It gave the northern kings a place in an unwritten chapter, as it were, of the Old Testament. So just one of the many fun considerations that Tolkien has in his in his commentary. Part of the joy of reading Beowulf is that you get to encounter a different side of Tolkien than a lot of people have first encountered. You know, you get to see a different side and put a lot of different context onto on, onto what you know of of, of Tolkien from other ways. I think usually people come at it in that order, Lord of the Rings, then Beowulf. There may be some who do the opposite and, you know, they have fun things in store for them too. Yeah. Um, well, so all this kind of talk about uh, the shifting of the language and the history of the manuscript and just the beauty of the poetry itself. I mean, this just kind of incites in me the perennial temptation to learn a new language. Um, which for the sake of the languages I'm still learning has to be <laughs> most of the time resisted until my better judgment finally is vanquished by curiosity. Um, Colin, what's the state of old English? How, how is it learned for people familiar with the work we're doing at ALI you might know that in terms of direct method or living language, active method, Approaches to teaching and learning Latin is probably in the best shape as far as ancient languages go. Greek is a bit behind ancient Greek. Biblical Hebrew is where we're doing a lot of work to provide resources along with some other people doing, doing great things. Um, where does, where does old English fit into all of this? Old English is, um, behind still. Um, there really aren't any resources for for living Old English, or even direct or natural method um, approaches, or e input-based approaches in general, you get a, a lot of grammar translation if you want to learn Old English. My advice would be 
to seek out a reader. Uh, there are great 19th century readers you can find online. Um, I have a list of resources actually on my own website. Um, it's just my name, colingory.com. Uh, all sorts of resources put together for learning old English, including some, some good readers, which can give you, you know, what would amount to the best we can do for comprehensible input for old English. They're not graded readers in the modern sense. These are Victorian yeah. textbooks, but they do work if you put enough into them. I would love to see more contemporary methodologies applied to old English. It's one of my one of my goals, my long-term goals is to is to do that. Um, but it, for the time being, I think it's a matter of finding a text you love. Beowulf was it for me. Uh, and just spending as much time with it as you can until that yeah. mass of words you don't understand becomes something that you do. Um, yeah. And it's a it's a process that that takes a long time, but the time is well and enjoyably spent when it's with uh, a great poem like Beowulf. Mm. Even though mm. it's probably one of the hardest things in Old English to, to read. <laughs> what, what else is out there for someone who says, oh, this sounds really fascinating. What what would all this work? I mean, Beowulf is certainly its own reward, but uh, what other kind of riches await the student of Old English? There are other, um, so there's there's a large amount of Old English prose, a large amount of Old English poetry. Both of those um, can be divided into religious and secular. And so in terms of religious prose, we have, we have things like sermons, saints' lives, uh, translations of bits of the Bible, uh, translations of uh, works of the church fathers, if you're interested in, in religious prose. Secular prose, we have chronicles, we have narrative history, the Anglo-Saxon chronicle. Uh, we have lots of legal writing like wills and, and things like that. We have technical works, grammar, medicine. In poetry, we have uh, religious poetry, biblical paraphrases. Um, we have the Genesis in alliterative verse, which is wonderful. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite something. Uh, we also have the secular poetry like Beowulf. Um, we have elegiac poetry like The Wanderer or The Seafarer. Uh, also much, much shorter, highly recommended. Uh, even in translation, just beautiful um, things. We have lots of riddles, uh, which uh, will will delight uh, Tolkien fans as well. And yeah, there's a there's a, a big amount of uh, a huge trove of, of riches out there. I think the easiest place to start would be uh, if you are attempting something like a, a comprehensible input based approach, would be to look at some of the biblical translations because it's likely that you'll be able to find. Well, it's likely that either you know them already. Um, you know the story, you can easily look up a, a modern English translation, and you can find lots of material there. Yeah. Out of curiosity, who are the church fathers who got the old English treatment? Oh, that's a good question. I don't, I, I don't have that off the top of my head because I have not myself read them. Um, I know they're out there. Okay. That's interesting. Well, awesome stuff. This is great. Um, yeah, it just really makes me want to go back to the text again. I mean, I was just in it. I'm like, oh, I, it needs another reread. Stat. Yeah, well, it, it repays it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, before we wrap up, one final question for uh, you, Colin, about translations. If you had to rank, you know, top three, top two, favorite translations and why, what, what, uh, what do you say? Oh, that's a good question. My favorite translation of Beowulf is a translation that came out in 2007 by Dick Ringler. It's called um, 
Beowulf, a new translation for oral delivery. And it is just, it's, it's really great. Uh, it replicates the, a lot of the form of, of the original. We didn't talk about Old English meter. It's a very particular thing, alliterative verse, two half lines with the stressed syllables alliterating. And, you know, there's, there's, there are details. We don't have to go into them, but you'll see, um, you'll get a much better sense of what the Old English is like when you read a, a, a translation that captures some of the same formal properties. Uh, and so I love uh, the Ringler translation for that. Of course, Seamus Heaney's translation is well worth its fame. It has its reputation of, of, of Heaney Wolf. Uh, it's kind of its own thing. <laughs> um, and it's kind of great as an English poem, as a modern English poem, um, you know, that can stand on its own as well. And so if, you know, there's a reason that it's so widely acclaimed. And so I would say those would be my, my top two. Uh, Tolkien's translation is something that is much more difficult to approach. And I think that it's not what I would recommend for people coming in at the start who don't have a, um, have an engagement with the old English. I think once you do, you can start to appreciate the, the joys of that. But it, it wasn't a poem that uh, wasn't a translation that was published in his lifetime and, and, Perhaps there was a reason for that. It didn't perhaps he didn't feel that it stood on its own as something that could introduce people. He had rather strong feelings about all these things. Right. And just a quick note on the on the Tolkien translation, uh, Tom Chippy in, in the lectures that we've mentioned, he notes that Tolkien has some some particular interests and some um, convictions about mythology that lead him to make certain translation decisions. That deviate from the text. Tom Shippey says that Tolkien cheats. So just be aware of that. But one fun example is in the genealogy of monsters, when uh, he's talking about when, when the poet is describing where the monsters come from and what are the, the monsters. He mentions giants. He mentioned, he also mentions elves and Tolkien did not like that. Elves do not belong in the list of monsters. So what does Tolkien do in his translation? He does not mention elves. Um, so <laughs> right. just, just a fun thing to mention about that. Yeah, that is, that, that's quite interesting. Yeah. Th there's lots of, yeah. I think, you know, if you are a Tolkien fan and you have not read Beowulf, just run, don't walk, get on it right away. Cause you know, it, it's a missing piece in so many ways. Yeah, that's right. Well, Colin, thank you again. Really wonderful. Um, yeah, I, I hope, uh, I hope people just really loved this and enjoyed it. And uh, I know I'm kind of learning things just hearing you uh, talk about it. So yeah, yeah please rate, review, share uh, if you feel so inclined. Thanks for listening, everybody.